Uh, good afternoon, we're in John and we're in chapter 4 and we're looking at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Uh, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Worship. For most of us who are watching this afternoon, we call ourselves believers, Christians. But coming to church, whether online or in person, and worshipping are not always the same thing. They ought to be. We wish they were. But if we're honest, they are not. It's possible to come to church, to do church, to do it for years and years and years and yet not be worshipping. Sometimes it happens slowly, imperceptibly. We lose sight of why we are really here or why we really ought to be here. Church is a worship service. Is that why you come to church? Are you here to offer worship? I wish that we were able to gather in the afternoons as we are in the mornings. But I think, it, I think you get the point anyway. Have you come to receive more grace from the Lord's hand? We all realise that we receive more from God than we ever give. He needs nothing from us. He receives nothing from us in one sense. But when we come together to worship, that's what we do. We come to worship. And that is what this passage is about. The chapter about the woman at the well has three acts to it. The first act we looked at last week was water. Worship today, next week, witness. So the second act, worship. And I want to lay out simply this afternoon three principles of true worship. Number one, God already knows if you are a true worshipper. He knows why you come to church. He knows what is in your heart. He knows your motivation. He knows what is in your past. He knows what is in your present. And he knows what is in your future. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now that may seem out of place, a bit random, but it's part of the Lord's plan to reveal who he is, to reveal to the woman at the well what she cannot and has not perhaps admitted about herself. Jesus is always several steps ahead of everyone he meets. You can't trick Jesus. You cannot trap Jesus. Jesus knows what he is up to with you. So you may as well admit it. You aren't going to hide something from Jesus. Jesus is several steps ahead of all of us, just like he is with this woman. So he says, go and get your husband. And her response is technically, 
sorry, technically truthful. She said, I have no husband. Now, it seems that she's in this interaction with Jesus trying to say something technically true that will get this rabbi off her back and avoid any further unpleasant probing. We are masters at saying things that are technically true or perhaps more sophisticated as adults. You know, you ever ask somebody, so where do you go to church? Have you ever heard the answer? Well, we're currently in between churches. Uh, We're still looking, which translates, I went to church last Christmas. Bring your husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, the one you now have is not your husband that's the answer to the technical question we don't know the story is she a widow five times over or judaism on the day for the day of the day allowed for divorce the rabbis frowned upon three or more divorces the word ana which is translated as husbands here can mean husband or it can also mean man maybe she's just never got married and she's been sleeping around for years and years a serial fornicator whatever the exact situation with the woman of john 4 it's clear she does not have a pristine past we don't know to what degree she's to blame for that but certainly it would have seemed suspicious and would have appeared scandalous she's now living with a man who is not her husband the last time she engages with this dialogue about water and she didn't understand that what kind of water the Lord brings she knew she was thirsty but she didn't know how thirsty she really was you may know life is not what you want it to be you know that your life is not where God wants it to be you know that you're thirsty for something new something better something more and yet you have no idea just how deep that thirst really is she had thirst that perhaps did not, she didn't even want to admit to herself, let alone to this strange Jewish rabbi who's standing right in front of her. God knows you better than you know yourself. He does. He knows me better than I know myself. It's one of the themes of John's gospel. Just think about it quickly. John 1:47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit whether by supernatural insight as the Son of God, or by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, or by the ability to know people at first glance, Jesus has insight. Flip to John 2, 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what they were like. He knew them better than they knew themselves. John 3 verse 3, Jesus answered to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus saw straight through Nicodemus. He knew here is a man. He's saying the right things. He looks right. He has the right pedigree. He's not born again. Jesus knew Nathaniel. He knew the crowds. He knew Nicodemus. He knew the woman at John 4. And brother and sister, he knows you. He really does. You may think that you look the part. You may think that you are more than anyone else in the church. You may think that nobody understands things like I do. But Jesus knows you. 
Jesus knows what really is going on. He knows your past, past history. He knows your present pain. He knows whether you come to church in sincerity. He knows whether you are hiding something. Jesus knows and he knows how deep the hurt is. He knows if you just go through religious motions week after week. He knows if you just come to church or if you are a worshipper. Jesus knows. And since you cannot hide a thing from Jesus, you may as well be honest with him. You may as well be honest with him in prayer. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, talk to someone. Get to a quiet place alone with the Lord. Tell him. You're not fooling him. You're not hiding anything from him. You'll never bring something to God that will be a surprise to him. He knows. God knows if you are a worshipper. He knows what you are doing. He knows what is in your heart. Jesus knew this woman better than she knew herself. That's the first point. That's the first statement. God knows if you are already a worshipper. Secondly, worship must be according to knowledge. It's hard to tell when there is humour in the Bible. I wonder if verse 19 is meant to be funny. Bring your husband. I do not have a husband. You're right. You do not have a husband. You've had five husbands. Husbands, the man you're living with is now not your husband. And then verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What did she understand by the term prophet? Did she mean the prophet or a spiritual man or you have insight? We don't know, but she recognised that she's dealing with someone who has supernatural insight. She then goes on to ask him about a mountain. Most commentaries, to be honest, think that she's diverting, that she's trying to distract. Like, he's getting into my personal life now. He's asking about the man I'm sleeping with. So, are you a prophet? Just curious. How do you settle the mountain thing? Which is what we want to do when God gets into our life. We want to ask a theological question. You know, um, to divert, to detract. You know, do you think baptism should be with pouring or sprinkling? What do you think? Or are the decrees of God infralapsarian or supralapsarian? Now, which one is it? Commentators think that the woman is just making a diversion. Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt because I think it's genuine. And the question, though it seems random to us, you're a prophet, I have a mountain thing, actually goes together. Because when she recognises this rabbi, obviously he's unique, he is a prophet, I want to ask him the question that a prophet needs to answer for me. What do you think, prophet, about the stumbling block between us, the location of true worship? Which mountain? And you do need to understand the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans, Deuteronomy 12 verse 5, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. The Pentateuch said that there's going to be a time and you'll find this place. God is going to choose a place for his home, for his manifestation on earth, for his temple. And the Jews and Samaritans drew different 
conclusions from Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. We know from the Old Testament the temple was built in Jerusalem. But the, the Samaritans didn't, didn't acknowledge the temple in Jerusalem. They believed and they did build a temple on Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. So instead of Mount Zion, the temple mount in Jerusalem, they had Mount Gerizim. And that was the conflict between the two. That was the religious division between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't accept the Old Testament outside the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch doesn't state where the temple is to be built. Now, two, two chronicles in the Psalter all over the place says that Jerusalem will be the home. But the Samaritans don't recognise the Old Testament, so the Samaritans established their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they had reasons for it. Shechem, the city overlooked by Mount Gerizim, which may be where Jesus and the woman are in John 4. Shechem was where Abraham built an altar when he entered the promised land. Mount Gerizim was the place from which the blessings would be pronounced upon the covenant people of God. Mount Ebal was where the curses was pronounced and Mount Gerizim was where the blessings would be pronounced. So they had reasons to think Mount Gerizim was a special holy place. And since they didn't acknowledge anything beyond the Pentateuch, they felt free to ignore the rest of the Old Testament and they determined that Mount Gerizim was the temple. Mount Gerizim was probably in plain view of the Lord Jesus and the woman of John 4 at this moment. Adjacent to Jacob's well, Alexander the Great had given the Samaritans permission to build a temple there. It was later torn down in 128 BC by a Jewish king, but the Samaritans continued to worship Yahweh on Mount Gerizim. That was the re religious disagreement which mountain was it? We know Luke 9 verse 51 when days drew near for Jesus to be taken up he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Why are the Samaritans so upset with Jesus? He set his face toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans were upset with Jesus because of this mountain question. The woman in John 4 is asking a question, not a diversion. You're a prophet, help me understand this. The Jews and the Samaritans literally had a mountain between them. Jesus answers her question. He answers a question to a prophet as a prophet would answer. Jesus said, woman, believe me. Now, woman is neither endearing nor derogatory. It's something like mom or madam, madam. He said the hour is coming, which is a prophetic way of saying things. There's a new day coming. There's a new regime change on the way. And when this day arrives, it's going to make this whole business about the mountains irrelevant. Not to say Jesus refuses to take sides. He knows, according to the scripture correctly, that God chose Jerusalem. Psalm 76 said in Judah, God is known. Salvation is of the Jews, not only would salvation come through a Jewish man, Jesus, but more broadly, salvation was to come from the stream of revelation, which was privileged to this point to the Jews as God's covenant people. The line of revelation, the line of the chosen prophets came through the Jewish people. Jesus asserted that. But then he says to her a word that must have been startling. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. 
for salvation is from the Jews. We worship what we know. Paul later in Romans 10 verse 2 says about his own Jewish countrymen that they had a zeal for God that was not according to knowledge. So it's not that all the Jews were getting this thing right. Most of them were not. But he's speaking to this Samaritan woman and he says in terms of God's revelation and God's economy, you worship what you do not know. We worship what has been given to us, revelation from God himself. I wonder if you worship what you know. Could you articulate the storyline of the Bible if someone asks what it's about? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what the gospel entails? Can you communicate it? If you're asked to communicate the gospel, can you simply say it? Do you know that there are aspects of God's character and nature that are beyond human comprehension? Mysteries which we cannot unravel. But God has revealed himself to us. Oh yes, he has. We know God. We ought to know God. And worship is always according to knowledge. So listen very carefully. Sincerity does not save. There are Mormons who really, really believe. There are Muslims who really, really believe. Sincerity does not save. You're not saved by faith in faith. Contrary to what any number of Disney movies will tell you. You're not saved by believing something. Your faith must have the right object. Sincerity matters. This sermon is in part about sincerity. But it must always be directed on the proper object of your faith. Do you understand what you believe? Can you articulate what you are doing? Do you know the one who you say you worship? It would be a sad thing for Jesus to say about any of us that you worship what you don't know. You mean well. You're into it. You're emotionally charged. But you don't understand. And it is not true. Which brings us to the final point. The third thesis on worship. The father is looking for worshippers to worship him in spirit and in truth. In verse 23, Jesus Jesus repeats this prophetic prediction that the hour is coming, but he adds something. Verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he's speaking of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And once that happens... Jerusalem, Gerizim, the whole debate goes away because there is no temple. But he says, no, that's in the future. This is present and future. The hour is coming and is now here. The prophetic fulfillment is now. It is right in front of you. The father means to orient yourself to true worship. He's seeking true worshippers. But don't let that pass you by at the end of verse 23. The father is seeking such people to worship him. God does not need anything. He's not seeking because he lacks. When it is says he is seeking, it's not because he's incapable of finding. When it says he is seeking, it means this is what he wants from you. This, men, women, boys and girls, is what pleases him. This is what impresses him. He's not looking for people who dress up nice on Sunday. He is not looking for people with a spotless past. He isn't looking for the cleverest, the best, the brightest. He isn't looking for the strong and significant. He is not looking for the winners. He is looking for worshippers. And notice his definition of true worship. He mentions it twice in verse 23 and 24. 
but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What does it mean, spirit and truth? Spirit is connected to the affirmation that God is spirit. You see it in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So something about spirit and truth is connected to the fact that God is spirit. There is a connection between these two realities. God is spiritual as opposed to material. Isaiah 31 verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. Man, not God. Flesh, not God. That is why the incarnation is such a mystery and a miracle that God, who by definition does not have flesh, took on flesh. God is invisible. God is immaterial. Therefore, proper worship of God is a matter of the spirit rather than physical location. Remember, in the background, literally in the background, is this controversy about Gerizim or Jerusalem, a mountain. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Which surely means that God is not going to accept your worship. He's not going to accept your worship or not based on your physical location. You do not ever have to go to Israel. You do not have to get water from the Jordan River. It isn't geography a matter of the spirit and truth. True worship must be connected to and rooted in the revelation of God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ the Son. As one author puts it, no matter how ceremonially elaborate, emotionally rousing or sermonically eloquent, worship that is not offered from a proper understanding of who God is falls short. Did you hear that? I can be the most polished speaker with the best illustrations. We can have a lovely church building. We can have an order of service that is impeccably put together. But if we do not have an understanding of who God is, none of it is worship. Which means as a starting place, we must recognise who Jesus is. You see at the end of the story, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. Christ is Greek for anointed one. They mean the same thing. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You can almost hear in her voice a sense of expectation. And stunningly, Jesus replies dramatically, I who speak to you am he. Ego am I. In Greek, I am. What is more stunning? That Jesus is the Messiah or that he first reveals himself in John's Gospel as the Messiah to this sin-soaked serial adulterer. Is that how you would have planned it? She's the first one who should get to know, for sure. Part of it is in all the Gospels, he is more willing to be candid about his identity when he's outside of Jewish territory. The Jews had all this baggage about the Messiah, the Messiah would be a military ruler. He was going to get the Romans off their backs. They were more prone to misunderstand. But I think Jesus is simply happy to encourage even the smallest bit of faith. So when the woman of John 4, who doesn't understand much, but is understanding more and more, says to him, the Christ is going to tell us all things, what do you think? He says, it is me. What an astounding admission for Jesus to make to this woman. 
The Father is seeking, searching for worshippers. Jesus will talk to anyone. He will talk to Nicodemus. He will talk to the woman at the well. He will talk to anyone who is coming genuinely, honestly, and he will speak if you will listen. Are you what the Father is looking for? The Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Sometimes in our day we have people say, I could never worship a God who... And then you can fill in the blank. A God, the God I worship would never send people to hell. Would never tell two people who love each other they, they cannot be married. Would never tell me that I should not do whatever makes me happy. Fill in the blank. We hear that all the time. Some of us feel that. The Bible is not terribly interested in the sort of God that you or I are seeking. The Bible is very interested in the sort of worshippers that God is seeking. Are you the one the Father is looking for? Are you here Sunday after Sunday for true worship? Worship in spirit. It is not just what you see or what you can put on or where you can be, but spirit and in truth. Not just what you feel, but what you know. We might describe it in our terms as head and heart. That in your heart, worship is not just a ritual. It's not just a habit. It's not someone's borrowed religion. God has no grandchildren. You don't get into heaven because your parents were good Christians. And in your heart, your head, is it based on knowledge? Is it based on the word? Is it based on God's revelation of himself? Not just your ideas about God. The Father is looking. What is he finding? It is wonderful to think that God Almighty, the Father in heaven, looking down Sunday after Sunday, looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. That he might look upon you in all of your sin and all of your struggles and all of your failures and weakness. And yet because you worship in spirit and truth, he might look upon you and say, this is who I am looking for. She is the one I wanted to find. This is the family I'd hoped would be here. He is just the person I wanted to see. Not because of what you've put on, but what you know, what you have, and who you worship. 